Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. The people have spoken, so you may have noticed that the old music is back. I hope you like it, but it's also a good opportunity to remind you that we love getting your feedback and your ideas for the show. We just want this show to be something that people learn from and enjoy listening to. A pretty simple mission, actually, so please be in touch. On today's show, we're talking about the contemporary mindfulness movement, which is something that I've long had strong and, as you'll hear, mostly negative feelings about. My tendency to be annoyed by all this talk about mindfulness around us isn't actually about mindfulness per se. I mean, who could be against that? But rather, my crankiness tends to concern the mindfulness industry that I think often reduces this important concept into something of a gimmick, in some cases profitable gimmicks, also just the feel-good initiatives that I see in workplaces around the state, including in my workplace. Luckily, on this episode, we have a bona fide mindfulness expert, Darren Larson, who, while sharing much of my critique, also sets me straight on why mindfulness is worth fighting for. In many ways, it's a different kind of conversation from recent episodes, and it also runs a little bit longer than we tend to, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. Darren's a really thoughtful and, dare I say, even mindful person, and I hope that you'll take some time to check out his website and learn about what he does. Also, Darren's the host of another WCBE-affiliated podcast, The Art of Attention, which I hope you'll check out as well. Before turning to my conversation with Darren, though, just a reminder to please rate this episode in your podcast app. And if you want to help us make the show sustainable, we'd really appreciate your becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month, which you can do by following the links at prognosisohio.com. While we'd love for you to become a Patreon, it's also just really helpful for us if listeners share episodes with friends, colleagues, and family on social media and elsewhere. We really appreciate it. Okay, buckle up for some mindfulness talk with Darren Larson. Darren Larson, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast in my dining room for the first time since the pandemic. Uh, it feels good to be with an embodied person here uh, together. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited to be here. I love talking about mindfulness. So thanks for the opportunity. I mean, you better like talking about <laughs> mindfulness, right? It's on your website. <laughs> so I, I actually want to start there. You know, I, I was taking a look at your website. Always a good first way to get to know how somebody projects their thinking about a particular issue, especially with you and, and, and the work you do. And you have this testimonial, and I, I wondered if I could just read it. It's, it's on the website or a little part of it. It says, I work as a nurse in an ICU. As my unit became a designated COVID floor, I quickly realized that the burden of work would be much more intense than usual. I had difficulty sleeping and found it hard to focus on things other than work when I was at home. Something we all know, by the way, I think, or many of us. The best way to describe it is that I felt so heavy, weighed down by the stress of work and struggling to fight all the emotional and physical manifestations of my stress. And, and they add, I now feel equipped, this is after working with you and mm -hmm. some of your mindfulness coaching, I now, I now feel equipped with a toolbox of ways to cope with the situation around me and, and to not let it break me. So I, I, I thought this was wonderful. It, it sounds like a good transformation, a good outcome. I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit of what is this toolbox? Like, what are the things that a person like this would experience when working with you? Such a great example. And I refer to her example a lot because uh, it gives me a chance to say, kind of put some perspective. So she was also talking to a therapist. She's basically a bright, young, passionate young woman, nurse, and was finding herself burning out. And a large part of that was she's having to um, 
the care has reached the limit. This is all we can do for the person. There's nothing else we can do. So watching that process unfold when there's no care left to give, uh, I don't think she was prepared with anything she'd learned. I don't know uh, along the way about how to deal with that. I don't know how many people have, you know, have been equipped for something like this. So in addition, she reached out to her employee assistance program, which I have a contract with, and they hooked her up with a therapist and they said, you know, this might be a good situation to work with a mindfulness coach. And they understand my approach is like very similar to uh, maybe a physical therapist. We've got this issue. How do we break it down? And what exercises can you do to develop capacities for responding? So we're not going to solve problems like the way you might with a therapist. We're not going to dig into your history and things. We're literally going to explore exercises. And with her, that meant making time at the end of a shift to pause and just feel the residue of the day, the whatever feelings without overthinking it, literally just pausing to kind of catch up with yourself. Yeah. And then she noticed from this alone, this exercise alone within a couple of weeks, she said, I just feel like I'm able to make the transition from the daytime to my uh, work situation to home. I'm more, present with my husband at dinner just from simply taking this like five minutes on work days to just feel what your body feels at the end of the day. And then we, we, in addition to that, we snuck in throughout the day when you saw yourself or observed yourself having an uh, emotional reaction, her tendency, and it was unconscious was to kind of stuff the emotion down. Yeah. And so I said, could you consider the possibility that you can have composure be a professional caring nurse and also kind of secretly be feeling your emotional response. And that's very private. So no one will, no one needs to see that this is happening. Um, but there's this kind of a blend of when you're in a environment, your car, your home, you're safe, you can give yourself permission to feel in a way that might disrupt your facial expression or, you know, play, play your hand. But when you're out in the world, and I think this is huge a huge powerful tool that most people aren't aware of they could even be playing with it, to be going through life with your eyes open, interacting with people, but having a little bit of curiosity held back to notice, Oh, this is what it feels like when I'm embarrassed. This is what it feels like before I give a, a presentation. This is what it feels like to take a test, uh, not to solve uh, the problem, but actually to get really intimately acquainted with the rich varying emotions that you can have. Yeah. So she, what, how she described it was, um, I, I didn't realize I was suppressing emotion until I started making time and making these opportunities to actually just literally feel what I was feeling. And that for her was enough to really ha have her feel supported. Yeah. And, and you talk about practicing. I mean, I, I've always noticed, you know, when people talk about yoga, they talk about yoga practice and there is this kind of iterative, you know, like, like, like make it a jump shot or something like you yeah. just have to get good at it. I've noticed that with myself lately. I've, I've been, you know, taking less bait from colleagues, you know, or others around me and being able to draw some of those boundaries. And, you know, I'm observing it and wondering if anybody else is noticing it, but I realize that actually they're not right. Most people aren't paying attention to what others are doing. They're just self-absorbed. Yeah, that's right. And it is a practice and it tends to be mindfulness has a so it's freighted with associations and all kinds of things, which we can talk about. But um, 
it really requires practice. It's a skill development. It's a self-awareness skill development that has implications for focus and emotional regulation. And I think how I like to think of it is the demand has never been higher for this skill set. But the, um, no, I'm going to take that back. The need has never been higher (laughs) for this skill set. But the demand is quite low. People don't realize it exists and they don't realize it's something they could hone. Uh, But I think there's so many areas of life that we could talk about what it's like to be alive right now. You think about what if people had some skills for uh, regulating themselves, how better off we'd be. You know, I've known about you for a long time. I've listened to your podcast. You have a, you, you at least at one point had a WCV podcast. And right. I know you're, you've been taking a little bit of a hiatus from it and looking forward to that coming back. So I've known about you, but then we had this conversation. I just got in touch with you one day and said, let's talk. And I felt like I was meeting a kindred spirit because I, and, and I, I was calling somebody who calls himself a mindfulness coach, but calling you and sort of saying, I'm like sick of hearing about mind and I just I just trashed mindfulness for a while and and you joined me with it because you're really irritated by bad mindfulness. I'm the- sick of mindful I wish I I wish I'd never had to use the word again. Yeah. I'm trapped between nobody would ever hire me if I didn't use the word because they're familiar with it in a general sense. But then I have to, I feel like I'm constantly clarifying what I mean by mindfulness, which is a lot of demystification and a lot of practical emphasis. So let's disentangle some of these buzzwords then, right? Because at the core is a really important thing, mindfulness. And then what we're concerned about and what I learned that you shared with me in in, in our our mutual concern was just kind of the, the malicious stuff that happens around that. So, you know, what's the relationship, for example, between another buzzword, which is wellness, that's mm. kind of everywhere, uh, and mindfulness. Is mindfulness a kind of subset of wellness? Is it separate? Uh, you know, How do you think about that? And then you talk about this idea of attentional fitness, mm. and you talk about attention a lot, which is, a, which is different. So I wonder if you can just kind of help us to understand Ooh, yeah. how these pieces fit together. Oh my God, these are my favorite themes. So what I think wellness was originally intended, I, I think of the name Don Ardell. Uh, I think he's still around. Uh, but he had this idea that your well-being, your health is on a continuum with one end being sickness and the other being wellness. And we tend to emphasize the like, if I can get rid of the sickness and I'm in a neutral spot, but what if we emphasize the, the idea of thriving? So that was the original wellness model in my mind. But I think that there's something about solving the problem of illness that's much more profitable than this kind of intrinsic qualitative value of thriving. It's hard to sell thriving. And so what happens is the market, the industry gets flooded with a lot of snake oil and a lot of you know, questionable uh, supplements and quick fixes. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, I'm afraid it's just the nature of thriving, trying to promote thriving in the world. Uh, Prevention, these types of things are really hard to make money from. So I'm not, this is an open-ended question for me, but that, so I feel like wellness has been overtaken by a lot of dubious claims. So it's very, I'm very suspicious of most of it, right? Um, Mindfulness kind of 
does fall up under that. If you think of wellness, including anything like from physical exercise to yoga, but then also into um, meditation or different practices, it also starts to think of itself as alternative alternatives to standard medicine. Imagining, you know, the CEO of some company coming to you and saying, hello, uh, you know, Darren, we'd like to hire you to work with our staff and yeah. make them mindful. And then you right. say, well, this is, there's, you know, there's going to be twists and turns and it's a paradoxical process and all these things. I mean, in a way, you know, you, you are not delivering a commodity exactly. to them and saying, okay, now you're going to be able to like you know, hang this thing on the wall. You're offering a pretty complex process, but that's not really what like right. modification culture wants. That's exactly right. So my, my best hope in explaining this in a corporate situation would be the example of physical fitness. So I call mindfulness attentional fitness because it draws parallel from this. You don't provide someone with a, uh, let's say they have a benefit at work, a gym membership or some kind of subsidy for their physical well-being. You don't necessarily say, well, if your productivity doesn't go up, we're taking away your gym membership because you know that people who exercise and eat healthy and get enough sleep are have a better chance of being healthy and happy and thriving. And we want our employees to thrive that we're getting into the category though, of qualitative more than quantitative in my mind. Right? So I, I'm, I'm not going to measure your blood pressure every month to make sure you still qualify for this fitness benefit. Right? And it's something very similar with attentional fitness in my mind. What if I gave someone exercises and support, help them navigate the challenges of how do I navigate the present moment? If we're talking about mindfulness being about navigating the present, how do I respond to the present more effectively? Well, sometimes the present is really comfortable and easy, and we can get better at savoring that kind of situation. Very often the present is fraught with conflict and challenge and emotion and confusion and uncertainty. Uh, take pandemics, for example. What if we equipped people to respond to uncertainty more effectively? And what if that's not something I can measure easily or get a quick, you know, first quarter result on, but couldn't, it's always going to be something that I'm going to have to devote resources to and really not get, um, how would I say, like with certainty that this is worth that, that many dollars to invest in my employees. But I predict that in this current climate of workplace transition and confusion and discord and everybody literally making it up as we go, I do think there's going to be an appeal. We know that, let's say mental health. We know that we, we, it's easy to talk about mental health, but it seems to be easier to devote resources to, let's wait until someone's in crisis and then we'll help them. And this is very much, I'm just, why wait? Why not equip people to thrive in ways that not only benefit how they experience their job, but just by necessarily how, it, how they relate to their friends and families and, and how they're engaging in their lives in general. Uh, I don't know. It's not a great fit for corporate America, but I think all we need is a few examples of people who are going to business a little differently than the traditional models 
and we need some people to kind of be the first early adopters. It reminds me of, I always feel like I'm trying to promote um, jogging like in the 50s or something, right? Uh, or, you know, there, nobody was jogging in the 50s because their jobs were physically demanding. It was only 70s and 80s people started jogging. And at first you were kind of unusual you had to wear a little terry cloth headband and some weird shorts and go running around your neighborhood. Um, I always like to joke about this, that I've got some family members in Wyoming. You are still considered weird if you go jogging around the neighborhood in any clothes because people still make their living um, on ranches and farms there, right? Uh, smaller town life. If I just find this interesting. At first, it seems very odd and strange. And we, we, associate the, the trappings, the clothes and the headbands and whatever, as, as if that were physical fitness. Instead, it's just one possible thing. All you need to do is challenge your heart and your legs and your muscles, right? So we, we know with physical fitness, there's things I can do to strengthen muscles. I could uh, increase my flexibility. I can increase my endurance. We're not yet we don't really understand or appreciate fully yet, we can exercise our attention in ways that are going to be much harder to measure. But when you experience that, that difference, it, is, um, it just makes life feel richer and more comfortable. It can lead to things like a sense of belonging. I think of it as um, inhabiting my life more fully or feeling feeling more alive, more at home in the messiness of real life. Um, that's going to always be hard to quantify. Yeah. You seem to have a bullshit detector like I do, mm-hmm. you know, um, of, you know, and I see these workplace wellness programs, for example, and, you know, I've, I've looked at the literature on them a bit. It seems like most of them have little to no actual outcomes that we can point to. But companies love to tout that they have workplace wellness programs, and there might also be cost savings. So I'm really suspicious about a lot of the things that happen within the corporate sector, also the university I work at, and many universities, everybody's all in on, you know, mindfulness Mondays or, uh-huh, you, know, uh-huh. nice, you know, things like that. I mean, how, how do we assess what's going on there? I'm a, I'm a glass half empty person. <laughs> I, will, I will admit to that. So maybe you can convince me that I'm taking this too far, that these, these entities actually care more about the actual health and well-being of their employees than the branding side of these things. I love the way you're framing that. I, I do think there is a genuine demand to help, their, help employees thrive. It's a daunting task. It reminds me of parenting to some degree. And it's also fraught with, sometimes I think about this, that the built-in challenge will be that you are the same entity that is paying your paycheck is also creating stress for you in your work demands. So to have that same organization offer some assistance is just going to be challenging, right? That's not going to go away. I do think that the paradoxical nature of mindfulness will make it, make it challenging, make it difficult. I think for me, what, what that means is it always needs to be optional, so I'm not a fan of everyone has to come to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have to get away from anything that um, 
emphasizes difference or that smells to people like a religious belief. And I don't think it needs to. I don't think that mindfulness needs to be weighted down with religion. The way I approach that is whatever you're doing to be a better person, whether that if you're atheist or Christian or Jewish, no matter what your religious viewpoint is, we don't need to go into that, right? I don't need, we don't need to connect as humans by making sure that first we agree on everything politically and um, from a religious or uh, or spiritual perspective. It's enough that I have a body, I have thoughts, I have feelings. My thoughts and feelings seem to be very different from my spouse's. There seems to be like a benefit to saying, oh, other people see and feel and hear the world differently than I do. And there's some value in the complementary nature of that. Um, but everything that you're doing to take care of yourself or to grow or to face the reality of I'm going to get sick sometimes, I'm going to age, and eventually I'm going to die. We don't have to go into the religious details of that. I think that is enough to say, oh my gosh, it's hard to be a human. Are there uh, tools and exercises and skills? Are there strategies I can use to navigate my life in a way that I can savor pleasant moments of being alive a little more? Can I fight with unpleasant moments a little less? Can I recognize our shared humanity in spite of these things? So I'm never going to go into a religious solution to a problem. But if you come to me and you, you are grounded in a particular religion or viewpoint, then let's give you tools that help you thrive within that context. I have no, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, I just think that's currently the mindfulness marketplace has to contend with this. I do, I do think that People say it's not Buddhist, but they they quote the Buddha an awful lot. And Thoreau and uh, right, right. Emerson and yeah. You know. Yeah, and I like to I like to keep my um, references broad in general. Um, poets and directors and comedians and any any because it's everywhere all around us. I think the human experience is everywhere all around us, and I think it's easy to just parrot what maybe was meaningful to you, but might be hard to hear for someone else. I'm really interested in translating what other people are saying instead of convincing them to change their vocabulary. Can I hear what they're trying to say? And can we still connect? I think this is huge. So I was talking to somebody at a, um, a physician at a local healthcare system about this one night, and um, you know, we were kind of dishing on workplace wellness culture and these sorts of things. And in this case, there was a kind of mandatory thing. Everybody was expected to go and talk about their families and things that bring them joy. And this person had lots of trauma and you know loss and was like, well, this isn't wellness, right? And they said to me something that has stuck with me ever since, which is what they really want is to go home a little bit earlier or to have some better work conditions or maybe another 15 minutes for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in other words, a better workplace mm-hmm. and better working conditions. And, and and the political scientist in me wonders how much of this mindfulness stuff is actually a response to 
massive inequality, the erosion of labor power. I mean, just just the fact that most people are unhappy in their workplaces. And what I see on offer from some of these places is, well, we have uh, a social hour or we're going to, uh, you know, do a book group when what people want is a little bit more time to be healthy. And another piece I just want to throw into this, which is, and, you know, I see some of this language on your website, too, you know, and it's all around us. Resilience, grit, uh, you know, and and these things to me as a policy person always signify, well, we need people to be resilient because we've created a society that is horrible and requires, you know, that has lots of stressors. Instead of going the social route and addressing the stressors, we try to steal people from within to be, you know, able to live within that. Right. So I guess I want to I want to ask you how you how you think about the interplay of trying to work with individuals in terms of mindfulness and the kind of society we've built. Does mindfulness have anything to say about improving the conditions of the systems we live in? Wow. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh, the there's so much here to unpack. And I, uh, my mind goes in three different directions at once. One thing I'll just I'll just launch with what grabbing me here at first is I, I do think that an organization can be formal and invested in profit generation and whatever, and still have their employees well-being at heart. I don't, it's a very challenging puzzle. It's a very challenging task. So I'll give you that. And I also think people know that it's very personal and I've sat in these trainings and things that I wanted to get out of. I didn't want to be a part of. And I, I think that's a fine line. Um, one of the things, though, if we think about how, how long have we known about the benefits of nutritious eating and physical exercise? And yet, we're not, we don't seem to be doing so well with that. You know, we have a lot of um, obesity and a lot of um, just bad eating habits. So one of the things that comes to mind is we're never going to be able to force someone to take good care of themselves. But I think we can get a lot more creative about matching people's um, needs with the kind of tools to navigate those needs. Now, I'm 100% on board. If mindfulness is just breath awareness and relaxation and some vague Eastern um, uh, perspective, then I think it has really no place at all to me in the workplace. And any more than any other specific philosophy would be something that's just kind of crammed down people's throats. However, if we're talking about attentional fitness, which is I'm a human with the ability to pay attention and I have lots of habits that I have unintentionally picked up and many of those don't serve me. In fact, I can choke the life out of pleasant moments and I can escalate myself if I'm uncomfortable or uncertain right? Or I can make an enemy out of anybody who seems different from me. These are, I think we are creative enough to say to people who are interested, here's a way to get better at this. If you, um, if you find yourself awake at two in the morning ruminating and you feel like there's nothing you can do besides taking uh, a medication that you don't want to take, try this, try this. 
if you want, try this. It's the same thing. I can't make you eat broccoli. <laughs> um, um, and I don't think it's about science. I don't, think it, I don't think we need one more research study. If there was just one more research study, I would stop um, binge watching Netflix and I would only eat healthy food. It's not going to happen. I think what we're kind of pointing at here is that it's challenging to be a person. <laughs> and we have a lot of bad habits we have a lot of habits that are really negatively impactful on our overall well-being, but each of us is going to have to decide um, how to respond to that. Um, but let me just yeah. ask you then. So, you know, I'm sitting in a meeting. Yeah. And, you know, I used to be a person who took the bait all the time. I would, I would raise every objection that came to my mind. I would be that person. You, you lose your power, by the way, when you do it all the time, if you don't choose your... Your battles, Choose your battles. So but, you know, I talk to others who are angry about things that happened in that same meeting and said, you know, I didn't want to engage with it because it's not worth my time. We have a whole bunch of like sayings we use yeah. at these moments. Um, you know, your blood pressure will go up if you need to raise your your points or your objections or your criticisms. And there's something about stepping back. I guess what I worry mm. about, just like a lot of, you know, the... Uh, a lot of my, my total uh, non-understanding of some some of these Eastern um, practices that have been appropriated, especially in the West, uh, but is that there there can be a depoliticizing part to it. Like we need people to speak up and be active, and I worry sometimes that some of these discourses. And just tell me if I'm wrong, but mindfulness it seems a little bit like some people use it to say. I'm okay. It's almost like the Seinfeldian serenity now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm asceticism. I'm recoiling a little bit to protect myself. Is, yeah. Is that right? So I see if I can, I love the challenge of trying to articulate this and I, I like do. I invited you over and now I'm just making you explain yourself. I know. <laughs> I, I love this puzzle. I think it's so worth teasing out. And I think we're still, we have inherited a lot of baggage related to all things that look like um, meditation, right? But I, if I come back to, I come back to physical exercise again and again, because let's imagine there's a gym and there's a treadmill, there's a room for stretching class, there's some cardio equipment, there's some weightlifting equipment. You can't force me to work out, but if I want to work out, I'm going to have to try different things and see if any of these are going to be something I'm willing to do. Can I get my steps up? Can I get my heart going a few times a week? That is so intimately personal, right? So my employer can never tell me, Darren, you need to ride the, you need to get on the treadmill six times a week. That's never going to happen. Or I would say that, you know, I did, I've run five marathons and I didn't, I, actively resisted phys PE class the entire, like I started running after high school because it was my choice, <laughs> right? Um, so we could have a whole conversation about the, the, the ways to avoid um, doing things that are maybe good for us because they're not a good fit for me. My thing is if we reduce mindfulness down to breath, sit in a quiet room, feel your breath for 20 minutes, and do that every day and just wait. And I don't know what's supposed to happen. Something, something, you're going to be less stressed, whatever. I think that's like saying you have to do the treadmill. You have to do weightlifting. And the way I approach this, or 
when it comes to mindfulness, it almost seems like it's like these psychological epiphanies or this positive have a good attitude. But I, I do hear the landscape changing, that I'm hearing more and more voices out there. Susan David with emotional agility and Brene Brown talking about the complexity of emotions. And there's lots of, uh, Lori Santos, there's lots of examples of, wait a minute, this is not positive thinking. This is not one size fits all. I think the popular conception of mindfulness is you just need to breathe, relax, you know, make it work. And I would say mindfulness could be a tool for this dilemma that you find yourself in. However, I can't tell you, only you are going to know the optimal, optimal way to use mindfulness in this dilemma. And I've been in this dilemma. There's this job that they're asking something of me that it feels like I'm stretched beyond my capacity. Do I stay and learn from it and learn to deal with this micromanaging boss and this backstabbing coworker? Because no matter what job I have, I'll probably keep running into these characters in different iterations for the rest of my life. Oh man, they're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or do I pull out my resume and start making phone calls and start getting myself out there quietly in the background, back channel my way into another life. Both of these options suck in my book. Mindfulness will not protect you from the suckiness of staying in a job that you don't want to be in, <laughs> even if there's growth potential. And it's not going to protect you from the challenges of finding a new job. Not, it won't remove that discomfort, the inevitable discomfort of that. However, I do think if I think the way I position this is if I'm a little more objective about my sub, this is a lot I'm, I'm just dropping on you. Uh, if I can be a little more objective about my subjective experience, if I decide to stay, mindfulness can give me some tools for how to decide to pick my battles. Who am I going to go up against? How do I, can I work in spite of these constraints, which I think is needed in a, human life. Um, if I decide to leave, how am I going to manage my energy and tension? So I'm not using all my energy during the day to grind against myself and the system when I need to be polishing that resume and things. So I don't think this is probably why I'll never get rich and famous on mindfulness. It's that it's the same way that we already know what's required of us for physical exercise. The gym's not going to help me get a better job, but it could help me uh, if I decide to stay or go, does that make sense? And I personally, part of why I'm so committed to this is I know my default settings are bitterness, resentment. Um, uh, I don't like other people and I don't belong here. And I've had just enough of a taste that I can see like the, like the, what's this, the calls coming from inside the house. It feels like it's the world's fault. And when the world changes, okay, then I'll ease into it. And I have observed enough times watching myself that often, yes, the world is unfair and broken. And um, we need to do what we can to repair that as best as we're able in our lifetimes. But it's probably going to stay broken in another way. It'll become broken in other ways as well. My hunch or my kind of drive is I don't want to wait for my life to be perfect in order to inhabit it fully. I don't want to wait for the world to sort everything out in order to enjoy my, you know, fall in love with uh, 
the this flawed world while I'm here. And it's not a popular stance, but it's my current stance. So mindfulness is a very individualistic approach towards self-care, wellness, right? If I'm if I'm you're working on yourself, you're kind of conceding that you can't really change what those other people are doing. However, if maybe through mindfulness, you will have those kinds of social um, yeah, abilities. Like you, people will notice that you're you know, not taking the bait or you're not engaging on everything. And maybe that has that kind of, so- like, I'm trying to understand how the individual care affects the social and doesn't just kind of opt out of the social and do the monastic thing. Yeah, where it's like, there's this spa vacation image of what it is. Like it's going to be relaxing and it's just for me kind of a pampering thing. Back to this monastic, I think actually contemplative practice has always been very social. But what we currently think of as mindfulness, meditation, con- contemplative practice, we're now really tainted by the self-help books and the meditation apps because it's something you do by yourself. But Everything I've learned, the most useful tools I've learned for sitting with my discomfort um, or relating to the moment-by-moment experience of my life has happened being surrounded uh, by other people and getting some uh, guidance from experts. So I actually think it is a very social endeavor. The other aspect of this is if we just take this alone, if, 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 it, if we change mindfulness from um, notice your breath in a quiet room and relax <laughs> as a way to manage your personal individual stress, and we put that aside and say, humans have the capacity to savor pleasant moments more and fight with unpleasant moments less. If you try at all to do either of those things, you realize they are very simple and not easy at all to do. And when you observe yourself, if I observe myself taking a garden variety pain and escalating it into like several days of torture and maybe finding someone to blame that on, but I watch myself do it. There's a kind of empathy that is empathy for the human condition that I think is needs to be part of this process. So if I were to design, if I were to like clear the slate and let's start over, what is mindfulness? It would be something about um, how to inhabit your life more fully, regardless of the specific exercises you choose to do that for some person, some people that could just be every day when you walk the dog and you put aside your impulse to solve the world and just notice the breeze and the and watch your dog and notice when you get frustrated why how long the dog is sniffing and that kind of thing right um it's something about can i take an active role in my own way i relate to what it's like to be alive in the present and can that be fascinating and enlivening and can it also uh, stoke some compassion and empathy for my fellow human beings so that I'm taking better care of myself so I can do the hard work of making the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I, I entered into this, as a, and I was pretty blunt and open with you about it, you know, just kind of 
disgusted by a lot of what I see around in the corporate world, especially appropriating a lot of these these terms. And you know, I'm, I it it bugs me a lot when we take the most important concepts in the world and turn them into brands. You know, whether it's caring or being healthy or uh, you know, I mean, that's what advertising does, right? That's 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 how commodity culture works. You've at least made me mindfulness curious today. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, th- th- that's 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 a good thing. And um, also, you know, I, I do think that this has to be the first of many conversations because I wanted to kind of do an episode where we lay out the kind of the, the big questions. And I figure as we go, we're going to be able to, uh, you know, get into some more specifics. So I look forward to, you know, you letting us know when there are things that need some of that treatment. Maybe you can be the mindfulness uh, coach for prognosis. (laughs) No, I love it. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this and we'll do it again soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Darren Larson for joining us on the show. As always, we've got lots of links and background material in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. You can also learn more about Darren and his work there. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. We received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger, the old stuff that you heard at the beginning and the new stuff that you're hearing right now. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your feed soon, so make sure you're subscribed and tell your friends. Thanks for listening and be well.